Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am always happy to start off the week getting a chance to chat with my friend, my confidant, my uh, colleague from the great state of Iowa, Patrick Albanese, who also happens to reside in the vicinity of the prestigious West Des Moines. Patrick, welcome. Welcome. I'm I'm back home after visiting your parts. Well, I will say that there are there are friends that will meet you for a meal. And then there are friends who will drive four hours to come help you dismantle your kitchen piece by piece. Patrick and I demolished our kitchen, my kitchen last weekend. Your kitchen, yeah. And <laughs> I thought, well, Saturday we worked 15 hours. We worked, yeah, we put it, we started the, 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 I got there Friday night and we said, well, let's just take out that one cabinet, kind of get a taste of yeah, this what be we're easy. in for. <laughs> And that that was a mistake. That was, <laughs> it was two and a half hours to get one cabinet out. Yeah, and we thought, well, we're just not going to get any of this done. You know, and it's, I mean, normally, you know how it is, you can call friends for rides to the airport, but when somebody says, would you like to wreck something? I'm like, well, I, I could probably sign on for that duty. Yeah. So we, but, we thought, uh, we thought, we'll just pop this cabinet out, you know, Friday night, and then we'll fresh start Saturday. And then Friday night rolls around, and two and a half hours later, the cabinet gets out, but we're thinking how many times... Did we say just go get the sledgehammer? <laughs> just go get the sledgehammer. Yeah, we were trying to get save this over the with. cabinet. Yeah, we were trying to preserve it. Right. And uh, when it's custom built in and it's been there for I don't know forty years, it, it makes it more of a challenge, doesn't it? Well, it was it was quite the challenge, and you know you can you can easily see the thinking of the people that are installing things uh, as they you know put anchor bolts and lock and key and they they they, <laughs> they put this thing in with cement or however they put it in and then flooring went up around it and locked it into place and you can kind of see the thinking is you know we're going to be long gone before <laughs> this ever becomes a problem <laughs> mm-hmm. for the next owner or for the next person that's going to ha- you know if if anybody decides they're going to have to take this out they're going to have their work cut out for them yeah uh and uh we sure did it was uh I mean, I think after that Saturday, we tell people how we deluded ourselves the whole time in the process of this, because your kitchen was built in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you had the original stove. I did. And it was old. I mean, it, it was I, really I old. never seen, yeah, I'm a, well, the, I think the clock was a sundial, I believe. <laughs> and that's how old that stove was. That was and old. Somehow or another, you managed to get a sundial stuck on twelve oh one, which I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, it said twelve oh one from the day I moved in. From the day you moved in. Uh, mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, it was right twice a day. I, I wasn't. I wasn't complaining. No, no. You, you, if you, as long as you checked it at the right time, you mm-hmm. said this thing's it's accurate. Yeah. But we started taking things out, and I think we started Saturday. And said, well, let's not start. Let's just not officially start. Let's just take this one thing out. Let's just take the dishwasher out. Let's just take the oven out. <laughs> uh, yeah. And happy to report only one somewhat near fatal electric shock for me. <laughs> but there was also one slammed finger and a couple of cuts that produced blood. And 
All of it was yes. yours. It was all mine. It was yeah, all yours. I, uh, as you know, I throw myself into a project until it throws back. <laughs> yeah, because your family uh, called and said, what should we get, you know, Dad for Father's Day? And I, we were on speakerphone, and I said, a couple of Band-Aids and a tetanus shot. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't stepped on a rusty old nail yet, but I see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you never know what's coming out of some of those cabinets. And when you are moving heavy cabinets in awkward from awkward positions where you're trying to be careful because obviously these things you don't, as they're coming down, you don't know how hard they're going to crash. Right. Yeah. And you work, you're working overhead. You're working where you, you know, and let's first up front say, we don't know what we're doing. Thank you. Yeah. You know, that's, that always, that's the factor that uh, will throw everything. We were, we, we were one person short from filming a Three Stooges movie. Yeah. In fact, I think there was a point in time we said, I think this is how the Stooges started. I think the three Stooges started, they actually did construction and said, you know, we're not very good at this, but we could make some pretty funny movies. <laughs> you just have to reenact that time. You hit yourself on the head with a bow saw. And <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, the, but the pulling the stuff off the ceilings and all of that, I mean, it was... It was quite quite a day, and then you took off Sunday morning, and I proceeded to pull, I don't know, six hundred staples out of the out of the floor because the flooring is getting replaced too. And I, yeah. I, I do say, being hunched over in that position, I, I have new appreciation for people in the, that industry that work that way every day. Because you know, you and I both felt uh, Sunday and Monday like we had been hit by something significant. Yeah, very uh, large and diesel powered. Most yes, likely. yes. So yeah. yeah, it was. I appreciated you and your willingness to come help. And I don't know if I ever, ever, ever want to do it again. No, that's. Uh, uh, but it was fun, and I'm, I'm really? sure that people have had that experience. Well, because it's it's done. It's over. It is. So you get to look back on this memory and say, "Remember that time." We bit off more than we could chew. Maybe, maybe we bit off more than we could chew. We started with the most dangerous words in the English language. How hard could it be? Mm-hmm. We did. You start there, and then you move right into proving just how difficult it is, uh, and why the you know why people earn what they earn. You know, uh, I, when I had this business, my friend Craig still does. He builds magic props for magicians and. You would sometimes have to farm certain things out, welding and some metalwork and various things. And we we just stopped questioning what people charge. You know, they run a business and our saying was always, it costs what it costs. Because until you are doing it yourself and you don't really know what's involved, you, 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 know, you know, sometimes you get an estimate for something, you say, that seems high. And then you start it and you say, I think I know why that guy charges what he charges. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's just, there's so much you don't know. Yeah. And as you're but, taking things apart and removing things, you're wondering, is there anything left here of value that could be, um, could find a new home? Could I be blessing somebody with uh, old kitchen cabinets? Um, there's all kinds of things that race through your head and, I did. Uh, I did find someone that wanted uh, a, a cabinet. I didn't sell all of them, but I sold one of them. <laughs> oh, so. okay. So all the extra effort we put in, yeah, so far, yeah. yeah, yeah. But you know, but you're like me. You say, I just, I hate to see this go to a landfill. I mean, exactly. at one time, this was a dream kitchen, 
uh, and somebody probably paid a premium dollar for it. Mm-hmm. And to think that, you know, 40 years goes by and you say, well, now that's landfill. Right. Oh, Oh, right. I just we treat too much like we treat people like that sometimes too. And I was gonna, I was going to donate the the kitchen cabinets to a, a very well known uh, nonprofit, and they said if they're twenty five years or older, we're not interested. Oh yeah, you, well you haven't experienced anything yet. Try to get rid of a sleeper sofa. <laughs> They're they're hard to get they're hard to get rid of. No no nobody wants it. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants you 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 can put it at a garage sale uh, free. Nope, not interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one in our basement that the previous homeowner said, you know, you get to keep that. You get to keep that get comes to. with the house. And <laughs> we thought it was great until we tried to give it away. Uh-huh. Uh, cousin tried to give his away. Eventually had to pay three hundred dollars. Have it removed. Nobody wants a sleeper. So, yeah, so you have to be, oh, we'll, we'll come get it. Yeah. But, uh, has, any, the, the, has anyone yeah. slept on your sleeper sofa? Well, Since... part of the beauty of the sleeper sofa is this. It's the kind of thing you want to have around if you don't want people getting too comfy in your house. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't yeah. want house guests for too long. You just put them on the sleeper sofa and they're yeah. bound to you leave. You you're good for one nights. night after yeah. yeah 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 one or two nights and then they say you know we'll just get a hotel oh really you're gonna leave mm-hmm. okay it was really nice having you here yeah would you like a sleeper sofa on the way out? <laughs> are they still uh, selling those can you still buy a sleeper sofa i'm sure you can maybe you know it'd be neat you know how they make all those those foam mattresses now the mattress you get in a box uh-huh. we bought one of those and this little box arrives you know and it, it's kind of they shove it into your mailbox <laughs> and you say where's my bed and you open the thing up and then it expands yeah and it's a bed yeah you know it's impossible to get it back you know in fact the one we got i, I said you know they didn't include my pillows they didn't include my pillows. They're just these sheets of paper that are rolled up in my bed. I honestly thought they were just a little sheet of paper that was vacuum packed, like the instructions. Those were your pillows. I opened it up and <laughs> kapowie. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Luckily, it was a soft kapowie because it was a pillow, but I had no idea. So, yeah, yeah if they could make the sleeper sofas out of something like that, but I don't know if you can, com- you know, compact those things again. Yeah, because you always have to try to sleep around that protruding metal rod in the sleeper sofa. Yes. And of course, they're squeaky and yeah, they sag in a certain spot. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, I wonder, and I don't know, uh, this would be something that I, I don't know if anybody actually knows the, the truth about it, but uh, do you think the guy that invented it ever slept on one? <laughs> <laughs> Likely not. He probably said, "I yeah, I gotta just sell these." <laughs> it's all marketing, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, uh, I think I had sent you an article where th- these people had bought a whole bunch of items for like twenty nine cents, and then they got storytellers to write a story around each item, and they made something like a six thousand percent profit on each item because of the story, the marketing that went behind. Oh, this trinket right here, this egg, this 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 plastic shell of an egg. That's mm-hmm. not for Easter candy. Oh no, 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 no. You know. So Yeah, no, it was, a, it was a fascinating story. Uh they went and collected um items like badges, bur- used birthday candles, Pez dispensers, lost keys, um novelty pens, snow globes, and little planes. 
they acquired the average cost of acquiring them was a dollar twenty nine. Mm-hmm. So then these two forty somethings uh, succeeded in selling every single one of these junk store items on eBay. The total price for the collection was three thousand six hundred and twelve dollars and fifty one cents. And you want to ask what could possibly have driven the value of these objects up two thousand seven hundred and ninety nine percent of their market value. And it's because they hired professional writers to write a story that was attached to each one of these items, which gave the object value. Gave it. Yeah. There was a perception of value. You say that's not just an ordinary belt buckle. Right. That belonged to a wild Bill Hickok. Right. Well, some of it was, you know, (laughs) obviously a person with a very, large imagination and some of it, Mm. I don't know if it was even truth telling. I think some of it was just embellishing made up stories uh, about, you know, this was involved in a, uh, a poker game and there was the stakes were high and, and this was used and that was on the table that night and you can own this and put it in your collection and you all not all of a sudden have a story attached to it. That, do you do you remember the old TV commercial for a product called New Vinyl? You know, for your vinyl top. Yeah, you know, I remember vinyl that. Tops on and uh, it made your vinyl top look new. And the, the TV commercial that sold millions and millions and millions of bottles of new vinyl, if you, may, if you recall it, it said, we ran this car through 57 consecutive car washes and the vinyl top still looks new. So uh, I got to meet the guy that oh, I was a teenage kid and uh, Marshall Burdine was a magician in town. He was friends with that guy who helped him market magic cards for TV. And I go to Marshall Burdine's magic shop one day and he says, this is the guy who uh, uh, came up with new vinyl. And so, you know, my best 15 year old kid trying to impress us, Hey, we ran this car through 57 consecutive car washes and still the vinyl top looks new. I'm doing the commercial perfectly. And the guy looks me square in the face and says, we never said if it was turned on. <laughs> I go, oh, that's a little deceptive. It was a little deceptive. I, I kind of walked out of there. I said, that's the best magic trick I've ever gotten out of that magic shop. Oh, that's terrible. That is so Isn't dishonest. It terrible? Yeah. Unfortunately, a lot of that goes on. All right, Patrick, let me take a little break. Yep. Patrick Albanese is my guest to get things started. I was like starting the week off on a lighter note, a merry heart. It's like good medicine. We'll be right back. Hi there and welcome. If you are a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome packet gift. Request yours today at myfaithradio.com. I'm back with my friend Patrick Albanese as we have been talking about emotional value that comes from attaching a story to an everyday object. It was a, a project that was done by a couple of uh, guys in their early 40s. They collected about 100 objects. Average price was $1.29. They sold everything on eBay for $3,600. The point I think would be kind of fun to make, Patrick, is you know the emotional value that comes from 
attaching a story to something is so strong that it, it, it increases the value. Now, having said that, there is this power in your walk, your personal testimony that says, this is how Jesus has transformed my life. Mm, it's true. And it, I, I think, uh, you know how, how I often say God has a flair for the dramatic. Uh, uh, because those stories, you know, sometimes you think we, we meet people that have gone through extraordinary circumstances, and then we hear their faith story, and we think, well, you know, God was able to use those extraordinary circumstances. And when this person came to faith, said, well, now that's your story. And that story is going to appeal to people or, or it's going to stick with people because they're going, to, they're going to see the majesty behind what God did. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's uh, you know, as you have often said, you know, and it, God can take what, whatever your situation is. When you're ready, it's like, I can use that. I can make that work. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, yeah. uh, it may not be the way you think, but I can make that work. Yeah. Now this this project, there, the writing that they did to try to create value in these cheap items they bought at flea markets and little shops was that they had a daring hypothesis and then a kind of a, a brilliant idea for proving it. So. You know, you look at your your life outside of Christ and you go, that's a pretty daring hypothesis. I tried mm-hmm. to do life on my own, in my own way, on my own terms. Guess what? It didn't work. So there was this brilliant idea for my life getting transformed and it was through the power of the gospel. Yeah. So all to say that if you um, have a powerful story, tell it. Let people hear it. Um, invite them into a conversation Ask them questions. Tell them about um, when you get an opportunity, if they ask you to be willing and able and prepared to tell your beautiful story of transformation in Christ. And and it's not just that they're compelling stories. You, you know, they always, they tend to be, you know, incredibly compelling. You know, I, I often think about the apostles, some of whom, you know, had... They wavered, shall we say, at various times in their faith, and uh, they had some difficulties at times. And uh, they're they're with Jesus day in and day out, and they're seeing miracles, but they still have some difficulties at times. And then you say a thing happened though mm-hmm. after after Jesus' resurrection that made them solid. That you say what what could possibly happen to take people. <laughs> who were witness to all kinds of miracles, were struggling at times, and then all of a sudden they say, nope, I'm 100% on board. And you say, that's the power of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. The power of the resurrection took these guys and they said, that's it. If whatever this results in, whatever whatever my fate is, however I exit this, this earthly plane, doesn't matter, this matters. Mm-hmm. This message, and I have to pass this message on. I must. Mm-hmm. And they became pretty solid. Yeah, they did. Unwa- <laughs> unwavering. Say. Unwavering to their death. Yeah. 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 So Sometimes not such a pleasant one either. I don't yeah. think any of them were pleasant. No, no, no. But, uh, and, and those are, you're right. That's the power of story. I think you've read that book years ago called Made to Stick. 
mm-hmm. uh, where they often they talked about. Remember those folklore stories you you'd hear the who stole my golden arm and the you know the the claw. They always they had always these various stories, and you'd say, why did these folklore these stories stick? And there was something about the story that uh, was just compelling or interesting. And you think of you know the the things that happened during biblical times, and you'd say, you know. For 2,000 years, people have tried to bury these stories. They don't want people to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And you say, you're unable to do it. Because these things that happened are so powerful, you can't hide them. You can't bury these. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Yeah, It's like you see what goes on in the world and you say, hey, there's a war against Christianity. You say, well, there has been since the beginning of Christianity. And don't worry, they can't bury it. Mm-hmm. They can only try. And Patrick, I will also say that although we use the word story, I mean, oh, how, yes. how often have you heard, hey, I got a joke for you? And in, you instantly go, oh, I don't think I want to, I don't think I want to hear it, <laughs> especially coming from you, you know. Right. But when people say, I've got a story to tell, and because it's a story, more people might be drawn to hear a story. And that's when you would have an opportunity to tell your story about what Christ has done in your life. I, I yeah, I think that's that's a that's a good point. You you uh, you know, have you ever, have do you ever told people you know something, and then maybe six months later, or you know, whatever <laughs> the time frame is, they uh, start telling you uh, that story, and you say, "Yeah, this sounds vaguely familiar." <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. That may have been that might have been me that told you that story. Uh huh. Uh, I'm sure you've had it happen. I'm sure I've done it to you where I'll be telling you something. You're saying, I might've been me that, <laughs> that told it to you. I go, well, that's the, you know, sp- I, the speed at which information travels nowadays though. Yeah. Now I, I you know, since I do, I wouldn't want to, you know, make that mistake again. I've decided that from now on, I'm going to start a story that you may or may not have told me <laughs> with a wise old, a wise old man once said, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm kind of get the feeling you might not. You go, no, that was me. I go, oh, you're the wise old man. Then. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, the wise old man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah now I've always admired the uh, the storyteller that sort of teases you a little bit with uh, just a taste of something. Going, yep. And that was that was I remember that that was the day I jumped off the Empire State Building. <laughs> wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I think I need to know just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. What did you do? How yeah. did you end up on the top of the Empire State Building in a jumping position? Oh, you don't want to hear that. Ah, no. No. Not that interesting. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's all to encourage you today that people love stories and that you've got a fantastic story because it's your story and God has given you that story and people want to hear it and you will do a fantastic job of telling it. And so try to do that as often as you can. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. All right, my friend. Thanks again for the kitchen demolition last weekend, and I will uh, talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Talk to you later. You bet. Patrick Albanese has been my guest. Get things started. We'll take a little break, and we'll be right back with lots more.
Let's get it started. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be meeting Jared Brock today. He's written a book called uh, God Named Josh. Uncovering the human life of Jesus Christ, something I've always been completely fascinated with, the human side of Jesus. Apparently, according to Jared, almost everything Americans know about Jesus is wrong. So I'm either going to help Jared sell a lot of books today, or he's going to get me in a lot of trouble. I'm not sure which one. Jared, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah. Am I going to get in trouble today with my listeners? Oh, I I hope not. All right. All right. So some of the things that I would love for you to uh, talk about is, um, you know, some of the things that we know about about Jesus being wrong. Like he didn't start a, a religion and he didn't wear long robes. So what are some of those things that just kind of tweak our attention? Yeah, I think let's start at the very beginning. So Jesus's real name is not first name Jesus, last name Christ. I knew that. Um, his real name was Yehoshua ben Yehoseph, which means Joshua, son of Joseph. And what happened was when we translated the Bible from Hebrew to um, uh, Aramaic to Greek to Latin to English, we went from Yehoshua to Yeshua to Jesus to Jesus. Okay. And so if Jesus was around today, I'm sure he wouldn't be very angry that we called him Jesus. But in all likelihood, if Jesus was born today, we'd probably call him Josh Josephson. So that's like <laughs> point number one. <laughs> all right. Yeah. So basically... The next question, th- basically, this all started in my kitchen. I was I was cooking Mexican food with my wife, and I was tossing beans in jalapeno and lime. And Yum. Michelle looked at, Michelle looked down at the beans, and she goes, "I wonder how often Jesus farted." And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we descended into a fit of giggles, and yeah. then we started talking about the human life of Jesus Christ. Like, how far did he walk in his lifetime? Turns out the answer is over 21,000 miles. Wow. What did he do for money? What did he wear? What did he look like? And this kind of sent me on a journey to kind of t- discover all the things that I did not learn or learned incorrectly in Sunday school class. So, for instance, what did Jesus wear? So, if you are if you went to Sunday school, you probably picture this kind of mayonnaise white Jesus with long brown hair and he's in a long flowing Greek toga. Well, we know that the average first century Palestinian Jew at the time was only an average of five foot six tall. So Jesus was probably somewhere between five foot five and five foot seven. Um, We know that the average person uh, in his area at the time had short, uh, dark hair, olive skin, dark skin, and dark eyes. And um, Jesus is never caught wearing a Greek toga. He's never caught in a stola. He's always in the shorter chiton, which mm-hmm. is the everyman's kind of shorter working working outfit. And he actually makes fun of people who wear long robes. He he actually, it says in the Bible, like, don't be like the fancy Pharisees who walk around in their long swishing robes trying to get attention. Just chill out, basically. <laughs> and so our picture of Jesus really changes when we realize he's probably a lot shorter, a lot darker and a lot more um, less regal than we may have pictured them in, in paintings. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people, uh, Jared, when they start to contemplate the humanity of Jesus, they get a little tense because they have the very same thoughts your wife was having, uh, because as a fully human person, he was probably experiencing all the fully human things that we've all experienced, the indigestion, mm-hmm. a little bit of gas, all kinds of stuff. 
Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, it's fun to realize that Jesus took naps. The Bible says that yeah. he's in a boat and he actually naps on a pillow. It specifically says that he has a pillow under his head. Like, it's really weird to think that, like, Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, got tired. That yeah. He needed naps. It's it's really incredible. So why do we think this is sacrilegious when we talk about this? Well, I think for so long we've just focused on Jesus, the God, right? Um but he is fully man and fully God. He had to come and experience everything we experienced. He had to face the weight of our sin. And so he had to do that in a female, in a, in a male body, in a human body, in order to take on the sin that human humanity has been exposed to through the fall. And so, but for some reason, we've just kind of set that all aside and, and been like, well, you know, Jesus is great, but it's all for heaven. It's all for pie in the sky, you know. Uh, cream cheese, cream cheese angels, and you know, streets of gold. It's not for the here and now. But the reality is, Jesus, his philosophy is brilliant. His economics are incredible. Uh, his politics have have wide-reaching ramifications. Now, is he trying to be a politician? No. Is he trying to be an economist? Absolutely not. Is he trying to be a philosopher? No. But he is the greatest of all those three things. Yeah. There's no doubt about that in my mind. He's the most influential person in history. But yet, for some reason, Christians, at least in our generation, in the past few, we've really made it pie in the sky as opposed to your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. Jared Brock is my guest. He's written a, a book called A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Jared, we know what John the Baptist was eating, um, but we don't really know what Jesus ate and where did he live and how did he get around? Uh, so in regards to food, we have a lot of, of foods mentioned in the Bible, dozens and dozens and dozens of food. We know that Jesus spent some time in Egypt, which was famous at its time at the time for cucumbers or a gradable, great portable source of water. So he probably had cucumbers, um, pomegranates. We know that Jesus ate fish. Uh, we know that he knows how to bake bread, which is kind of fun. Um, he, he roasts fish over coals at one point for Peter and, and has baked bread there. Um, he would have had lamb at Passover, um, but he probably didn't eat too much meat. Uh, he was he wasn't super wealthy. That said, he does have lots of parties at tax collector's house and whatnot. So he probably had a good range of food. Um, wine was present uh, at the Passover Seder meals that he attended regularly from childhood. Um, the what's really interesting is that Jesus never tried a tomato or a potato because those were both New World foods. And they hadn't been brought to the Middle East at that time. Same for rice. Um, very common staples of our diet today. He wouldn't have had. Um, his disciples get in trouble for picking wheat on a Sabbath day. So my guess is that Jesus is also partaking in raw wheat. And yeah, so we have a, we have a decent idea of what, what he may have ate, if he ate like normal person at the time. And uh, But he Jesus, he, he's constantly eating. There's tons of stories in the Bible of him. Uh, over meals, and he's always using food as a setting to tell stories, to lead people closer to himself and to his father. He really uses meals as a as a tool, as an invitation. And what's really interesting, Bill, is that the New Testament church picks up on this. They actually, you know, when we do communion at a normal church on a normal Sunday, it's like wine or grape juice and a little anemic cracker. But they actually practice something called the agape or the love feast. So they would actually have 
a huge feast every week. The Catholic Church eventually banned this three or four hundred years on, but <laughs> for the first few hundred years of the Christian faith, whenever we got together, we would have these big, beautiful parties where rich and poor, slave and free, male and female would eat as equals, and we would remember the Lord as part of that feast, which I think is really special. I would love to see churches bring back the agape. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic. Mm-hmm. Jared, what do you think about uh, Jesus? I know he worked as a, a, a carpenter, but of course there was more than just woodworking involved in his profession. What do you think he did in terms of making money and just getting his bills paid? Well, so the Bible says that until the age of 30, that he, around the age of 30, he worked as a tecton. Now, there is a specific Greek word for carpenter. That term is never applied to Jesus. He's only given the more ge- general term of craftsman. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting is that Jesus almost never mentions wood in his parables. He only has two mentions of wood. Uh, he, he, Jesus only mentions wood twice in total. Um, wood is very scarce in first century Israel. Um, Solomon actually has to import carpenters from elsewhere to build the temple. He has to bring in cedars from Lebanon. Uh, this just isn't a big skill set in the first century at the time. However, Jesus is always talking about rocks and stones and building your life on a firm foundation and wine presses and towers and gates. He's constantly talking about rocks and stones. So there's just as good of a chance that Jesus is actually pro- probably more of a of a mason or a, a stonemason or a, a general contractor. He's more of a a craftsman of sorts. The word is is um, tecton. So that's how he makes his money till he's about thirty. And then when he's about thirty, his kinsman John the Baptizer gets arrested by Herod, and Jesus decides to basically come out as a rabbi. He goes back north. He's been, so he's been living kind of in the desert near the Jordan with John and his buddies, and he heads back north into the Galilee. And he starts barn burning through all the, all the, all the temples and the, um, the different, you know, basically their version of church at the time. They were called synagogues. And he is proclaiming this new royal proclamation that the kingdom of God is here. Uh, you know, repent and, and believe this good news. And, um, so the, but of course that doesn't pay the bills. How, how does that actually make him money? Well, it turns out that Jesus's ministry is actually bankrolled by women. Now, in first century, this is scandalous, mm-hmm. scandalous news. You know, if you want if you want your rabbi to have any sense of credibility, you assign him patrons of the highest order. You know, maybe it's the high priest in Jerusalem. Maybe it's uh, Caesar Augustus himself. You know, maybe it's some, some very well-known and respected men. You don't have a bunch of women support you. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus is sponsored, that he is, that his... Um, group of disciples is is bankrolled by women. We actually know three of their names, uh, Mary, Joanna, and Susanna. And one of them is actually um, the wife of Herod's household manager. And this is an astounding thing when you read this in scripture, like, hold on, that's the equivalent of like Volodymyr Zelensky and the Ukrainians being sponsored by Vladimir Putin's accountant. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's crazy that enemy money is bankrolling the kingdom of God. Like, it's just, it's really wild when you realize how... Um, how powerful this this new message is that Jesus is sharing. So, Jared, when he decides to uh, be a rabbi, how did he get that title without going to rabbi school? Well, so rabbi school actually didn't exist yet. That comes later in the rabbinical period after the structure of the temple in 70 AD. So there isn't, there isn't, there's no paperwork to be a rabbi at the time. It, it's really, it really makes more sense to just call him a teacher. Mm-hmm. That's, that's essentially what rabbi meant at the time. There was, you know, you could, you could call yourself a rabbi if you wanted to. Now, that said, Jesus 
unquestionably is trained. He quotes 24 Old Testament books uh, in the New Testament. So he, you know, he clearly has a very good, and it's not like he has a Bible with him, right? He, he has memorized huge chunks of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what's different, what's different about Jesus though, versus the other rabbi teachers of his time though, Bill, is that all the other guys like Hillel and Shammai and all the other rabbis around who are alive at the time of Jesus, they are offering commentary on the Old Testament. So you've heard it said, you know, um, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's how I interpret it. Jesus comes along and he actually assumes authorial intent. He's like, here's what I meant when I wrote that. <laughs> like, he, it's just, he, it's scary how, <laughs> how he just like dominates the Old Testament. So like, for instance, um, the Old Testament says, do not kill, right? Do not murder. Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said, do not kill. I say, do not hate. So here's what's so beautiful about the law of love, like what Jesus comes. He doesn't come to get rid of the Old Testament and all the laws. He comes to fulfill them with love. So if you don't hate anyone, you're never going to murder anyone, right? Like if I love my child, I don't need a law that says thou shalt not murder your son because I love him, right? Mm -hmm. There's no hate for him. So I don't need that law. I have the law of love. Another example, Old Testament says don't commit adultery. Jesus says don't lust. If you don't lust, you don't need a law that says don't commit adultery. That's it's true. just not going to happen. Yeah. And he does this with so many issues. Old Testament says don't charge interest to fellow Jews. Jesus says loan to anyone, even your enemies, and expect nothing in return. Every single time he mentions an Old Testament law, he fulfills it. He fills it up with love so that it's just not necessary. Anymore. He just obliterates it with love. It's beautiful. Yeah, that is beautiful. All right, uh, Jared, we're going to take a little break when we come back. I think I'm going to ask you some of the tougher questions when we come back after the break. Something like, was there a secretive crime family that engineered Jesus' death? Ooh, that's coming up next. Jared Brock is my guest. His book is A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. We'll be right back. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. Hopefully that 90 seconds only seemed like 90 seconds. My guest is Jared Brock. He's written a book called A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. So now I think uh, the question that's going to get tougher, Jared, is you say in your book that um, the Jew it's often said that the Jews killed Jesus, but who was the secretive crime family that engineered Jesus's assassination? Mm -hmm. So this is probably one of the craziest things I discovered in writing this book was, okay, so there's this idea that the Jews killed Jesus, like all Jews for all time, you know, like Steven Spielberg is, is uh, he's, he's to blame for killing the Jews, right? There's actually a term for this belief that the Jews are to be blamed for all time for Jesus's death. It's called Jewish deicide, the idea mm -hmm. that that they killed a deity. And most Christian denominations have not repudiated this piece of really bad theology. Basically, it comes down to this verse in the New Testament where a very select group of individuals say, let his blood be on us and our children. So this, this starts this, you know, blood curse for all time against the Jewish people. And it's a huge part of the reason why the Catholic Church persecuted the Jews for a thousand years. It's a big part of anti-Semitism. It just kind of lingers in the back. It's a very bad stain on, on Christendom and Christianity. 
Um, and it's completely nonsense. Um, so basically what happened was there is a crime family behind the scenes who actually engineers Jesus's assassination. The head of this crime family, his name is Annas Ben-Sethi, and he controls the Jerusalem temple. He bribes his way to power in his 20s. He's in power for about a decade. And when he uh, eventually gets fired by the Romans, he gets his son-in-law um, selected to be the high priest. His son-in-law, son-in-law's name is Joseph Caiaphas. And Caiaphas holds the position, but Annas holds the power. Annas will actually eventually get five of his sons elected to the high priesthood, and they dominate it for 60 years and the enti- during the entire time of Jesus's life and the New Testament church. And what happens is they are just milking the Jewish faithful. So when you go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, they're charging you 20 times the market value for sacrificial animals, for birds, for pigeons, for sheep, for lambs. Um, they have a exchange network for exchanging currency that is ripping people off like crazy. They have a money minting organization that is so shady. Um, they actually force faithful Jews to pay their temple tax with a Tyrian shekel, which actually says that Baal is God and that Tyre is the city of God. Like they're they're making faithful Jews sin every single time they go to worship God. They're making somewhere between 100, between 10 and 100 million dollars a year off of all their various scams. And Jesus is furious about this. We've actually, since the archaeologists have found Annas's house, it's the biggest house ever excavated in ancient Israel, 13,000 square feet stone house. And Jesus goes into the temple during Passover and he sees the four booths of the sons of Annas and he decides enough is enough. And he drives out their money lenders, he drives out their stalls, and he basically sets up shop and starts preaching. And he keeps it shut down for Passover week. This is the most important week of their year. They're, they're, this is where they make most of their cash so that they can then re-bribe Pilate to keep themselves in power. So they need to get Jesus killed ASAP because they need to get these, these money-milking stalls back open so they can make cash to maintain power. The Bible says that from the moment Jesus drives out their people, that they immediately seek a way to kill him. Jesus actually tells a parable about them. It's the parable of Lazarus. It's the story of a father with five sons who don't believe in the resurrection or the prophets, and one of whom is dressed as the high priest in in priestly robes. Like It's a barely-veiled parable about Annas and, and his evil house. And Jesus, when he is arrested... Um, he is not taken first to Pilate. He is not taken to uh, Herod. He's not taken to the Praetorium. He is taken to the house of Annas. And the very first of his five trials that night is before Annas. And after Annas, he is taken before Caiaphas. And it's only after Annas and Caiaphas do they together take him to Pilate and then and then convince Pilate to execute this innocent man. Pilate and Herod are very clear that Jesus is innocent, but the house of Annas is so smart, so so um, cunning politically that they get the job done. But what happens is 50 years later, when the gospel writers start writing their accounts, every single one of them points the finger at the house of Annas. Annas is mentioned in the New Testament four times by name, and their house is mentioned, like the family is mentioned 84 times. Every single one of them put the blame where the blame belongs. And that is not that all Jews for all times and all places have are responsible for the death of Jesus, but the blood of Jesus really is on the house of Annas. 
Jared, I have to say that is so fascinating. I had a guest on not that long ago. She was a, a young Jewish girl in New York and on the playground, the kids were taunting her as saying, you killed Jesus. Mm. So mm. that must be something that a lot of Jewish people felt like, well, yeah, they're blaming it on us. Yeah, this is this is so important that we get the facts out, that we get the story out, that we help people understand that this was anti-Jewish people. They were fake Jews. These are people who who are Jews in name only. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in the prophets. They they disobey the interest laws. They disobey the worship laws. They are are devouring the house of widows. Um, they're actually beating rabbis to steal their stuff. Like it's they're awful people. And uh, yeah, they have. They have nothing to do with Yahweh, nothing to do with Jesus, and uh, I think I think this is such an important conversation we need to have in relation to in regards to Christian Judeo relations. I think it could go a long way to have denominations speak up against this and have pastors teach about this. I think it's really important. Yeah, no kidding, uh, Jared. I'm sure you did a um, masterful job in your book explaining all this, and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to get their hands on it. Uh, the book is called A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. If people just climbed in their car, uh, remind people again why a God would be named Josh. Uh, uh, his name was Yehoshua ben Yehosef. It got translated from Hebrew to uh, Aramaic to Greek to Latin to English. So we went from Yehoshua to Yeshua to Jesus to Jesus. He would be Josh Josephson if we met him today, but... I think he'd be okay with us calling him Jesus too. All right. So we all think that Jesus had 12 disciples, but you say he m had many more. Yeah. The Bible's very clear that Jesus had 72 disciples. He has 12 apostles. Those are his inner 12. Okay. And it says that, he, that they are chosen from the greater group of disciples. He has 72 in, in total. What's really interesting is they're not all just males. He has lots of female disciples. In fact, we know five of his female disciples by name. We actually know more about some of his female disciples than we do about his inner 12 apostles, which is fascinating. And what's really interesting is when the Garden of Gethsemane scene happens and all the other disciples abandon Jesus, all the gospel writers are clear that at the foot of the cross, who is left but John and four of the female disciples contrasted with the four Roman soldiers. It's a beautiful picture, but the foot of the cross, it's the females. It's the women who stay faithful to the end. The last person to see Jesus alive is a woman. The first person to see Jesus alive again is a woman. The first person to tell the other disciples that Jesus is resurrected from the dead is a woman. The first church planter in Europe is a woman. Paul plants churches with women. Women are all over scripture if you actually look for them. And they were definitely part of Jesus's inner circle. There's there's no doubt about that if you read scripture clearly. That that females, you know, the Paul says in Christ there are no male or female, there's no slave or free. In Christ we have equal value. It doesn't mean we're equal, like doesn't mean we have the same roles, doesn't mean we do all the same things, but we have the same equal value in Christ. And so yeah, Jesus is is troublingly egalitarian in his day. Um, because women were second-rate citizens, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're one step above slaves and property. And yet Jesus dines with them. You know, a third of his miracles involve women. The first person he tells that he is God is a Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he has no problem even, even, you know, forgiving a woman caught in adultery, something that, that you could legally stone a woman for. Um, Jesus loves women, and, uh, and he has a place for them at his table. Jared, look at the women in his genealogy. 
You've got a well, yeah. Like I mean, he's got a prostituted woman in Rahab in his genealogy, yeah. right? He's, yeah, he's got survivor. Some special women, yeah, yeah. Single uh, unwed mother. Yeah. Quite a lineup. So Indeed. yeah, we've only got a couple of minutes left, uh, Jared. It's a fascinating conversation. Uh, really, really interesting stuff. Um, so tell me a little bit, just as we kind of start to wrap up here your motivation to write this book and what was the greatest discovery you made personally writing this? Ooh, well, like, I mean, th- probably the house of Annas thing was just okay. so, so crazy, right? Like just, I, that there was a, a crime family that engineered this whole thing. It's just wild. That like, is wild. That was a That was a huge one for sure. Um, I will be unpacking Jesus's economics for years to come. Okay. He, what he has to say about money the Christian church has broadly ignored, <laughs> broadly and deeply ignored. And, and I have no doubt that I'm going to write a book in the future on Christian economics. Jesus, um, his, you know, okay. So Christians can't be communists. Why? Because communism requires force, right? Like communists started with good intentions. They took two phrases from acts um, from each, according to his ability to each, according to his need, right? That's beautiful, mm-hmm. but you can't, for enforce that with violence and government coercion so it's it can't be christian like but at the same time christians can't be capitalists because capitalism is private property and the bible's very clear that everything belongs to god mm-hmm. the ownership is not a term that applies to humans same with perfection these are terms that apply exclusively to god we have occasionally stewardship <laughs> yeah but that's you know so we can't be capitalists or communists we just have to be christians there is a biblical economic framework that is laid out in scripture on how land rights work on how taxation works on how we are to lend uh without interest if you look at scripture there's a very clear biblical framework on how we are to use money and at the end of the day christians are called to worship god and not money jesus says that money is the enemy of faith and that we have to put it in its proper place, which is in complete subjection and servanthood to Jesus. So that's something that I'm going to be digging into for years to come, I think. Well, I would love to have you back on the program. I, I just feel it. we just got started and we're mm-hmm. out of time. So, Jared, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a delight meeting you. Thanks, Phil. You bet. Jared Brock has been my guest. His book is A God Named Josh, Uncovering the Human Life of Jesus Christ. We'll take a little break. and be right. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.